Welcome back to the program. We often say that actions have consequences. So do ideas. And we don't always know the full extent of those consequences. Just as the science of splitting the atom changed the nature of geopolitics and may still reshape civilization, so the ripple effects of certain inventions have consequences and impact far beyond what was originally thought. As we worry about the spread of disease these days, it provides an interesting context. Essentially, we can think of certain inventions as patient zero, that dead spread over vast landscapes and almost always change the world in ways that we could not ever have imagined. This is the lens through which our guest Stephen Johnson views the world. Stephen Johnson is the best-selling author of Where Good Ideas Come From, The Invention of Air, The Ghost Map, and Everything Bad is Good for You. It is my pleasure to welcome Stephen Johnson back to this program to talk about how we got to now, six innovations that made the modern world. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, it's great to be back. It's great to have you here. One of the things, as you look at these particular inventions and innovations that you talk about and the consequences they had, one of the things that becomes immensely clear is how unpredictable it all is, how the course of events and the way things impact the world really are not something that almost ever can be predicted. Yeah, that's part of what makes, um, I think it's such a fun project, um, uh, and, and what made it so fun to research, really, um, and, to, and to tell these stories in a sense that there are all these almost narrative twists um, that, you, that you don't see coming. Uh, and, it, and it's an important thing, too, because it is really how so much of change happens in, in, in society. I mean, we, we tell the story in, um, in the Time episode about, about clocks, um, about the, the invention of standardized time. Uh, and uh, th- this, is, this is one of these things where <laughs> there's a problem that we don't even think of as a problem anymore. But in, 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 until the late 19th century, every town in America was on its own clock, um, kind of measured by a local reading of the time. So, you know, you'd be in Calistoga and it'd be, 12:15, and then you'd go over to Sonoma, and it'd be 12:17, and then you would go, you know, down to Sausalito, and it'd be 12:19 or something like that. And the what was crazy about it is nobody even noticed this. No one cared. It didn't matter because you didn't have to coordinate your time on a kind of minute by minute level with people in other towns. And what changed all that was the railroad. The railroad came along, and suddenly people were leaving one town at one time and traveling 30 minutes, and then their watch was off by three minutes or something. And But the railroad had originated somewhere else, and so it was on the other town's time, and you had to catch a train that was on some other town's time, and it was just impossible to tell what time it was. And so the railroads forced us to standardize time and then divide the country into time zones, which was a very arduous process, took all this time to come about. But what that made possible... And, and no one was planning this, no one even thought of this, was the next century um, when national media came along. And you can't, you can't say, you know, tune in to our show at 9 p.m. Pacific unless you've agreed on what 9 p.m. Pacific is. <laughs> and so it was, it was a problem that was created by railroads, then solved by coordinating clocks, which then set a groundwork for, for radio and television, even though no one even thought about that. One of the other things you talk about that, that, again, has this long time arc is thinking about the invention of the printing press causing people to read more, needing glasses, lens making, and going all the way forward to, to fiber optics and technology and, and even the selfie in Google Glass. 
Well, we yeah we have a there's a whole chapter in the book and then and then an episode in this in the PBS series that we have that's coming out in twelve days or so. Um, that is all devoted to glass and and glass is something we don't think of it as a technology. You know, we don't think of it as an innovation even, and we kind of take it for granted. But if you could if you could wave a magic wand and eliminate all glass from human society. Uh, the, the consequences would be devastating. Well, not just windows and you know wine glasses and things like that, but spectacles. And then everything we learn from telescopes and microscopes, all the understanding in, in health and medicine and our understanding in the world, all, all the way to every lens, every, every TV screen, every iPhone screen, the Internet itself is made of glass because of fiber optics. I mean, the world would come to a crashing halt. So, you know, the, and that's a thousand-year history. Um, and as you said... There's a very interesting twist at the beginning, which I, you know, it's one of my favorite stories in the book, which is, which is Gutenberg. Everybody, I feel like everybody has, you know, uh, their take on Gutenberg. He invented the printing press that changed the world in a million ways. But the story I think most people haven't heard about Gutenberg is that, as you said, it, it created this demand for, for reading glasses that people basically didn't, again, it's, it, it's a problem that didn't exist before this technology came along, just like standardized time and the railroads that people really didn't have a need for reading glasses before they had to read they just didn't look at objects that were very close to them that were very small and hard, hard to discern but suddenly there was this need for reading glasses and that sparked a whole industry of lens makers uh, all across Europe who then started to tinker with their lenses and through that tinkering they invented the telescope and the microscope which revolutionized science and health very quickly so Gutenberg was kind of tied up in that, although it certainly wasn't his plan. It wasn't something he was trying to do, but it, it, was, it was central to that story. What it also does is it makes it very difficult, if not impossible really, to judge any kind of innovation or any kind of technology in the moment. Because while you may be unhappy with, with the consequences at that particular moment in time, even if it means you know changing time, changing what you're used to, in fact, the long view may have very positive consequences from any particular perspective. Right. And, and, and also the reverse. I mean, you can have technologies, you know, air conditioning is, is a big story. Uh, it's actually mm -hmm. one of the first stories that, that we knew we were going to tell. We kind of built the first script and the first chapter around, around the story of cold. And, and air conditioning is one of these things that begins with this, <laughs> almost accidental discovery this guy Willis Carrier who went on to found the Carrier Corporation still makes air conditioning units to this day he was hired as a young engineer and he's hired by this print shop in, in Brooklyn um, to help them with this problem where the, the printer in, in the in summer um, they were having trouble with the humidity levels in the in the in the printing press room um, and it was causing the ink to kind of smear on the on the page and we're getting a kind of a crisp uh, print of these glossy magazines they were printing. And so they hired Carrier to build basically a dehumidifier for the room. And he built this contraption, and, and really as a side effect, it, it made the air dry, but it also made the air cooler. And so all of a sudden, everybody who worked at the at the printing shop was like, I'm going to have lunch in that room <laughs> with the printing machine, because it's really nice in there. And so he goes out and, and founds this company and mass produces air conditioning. But what really happens when it really changes the world is about 50 years later when they finally start making these home units right after World War II. And it triggers this extraordinary, really the largest migration of human beings in the history of the United States, moving from 
you know, the hot uh, from the cold northern states to these to the Sun Belt and to places like you know Arizona, New Mexico, and and, and Nevada uh, and Florida that were really hard to live in before air conditioning, and uh, that has a huge impact on the political map of the United States. So there's this 50, 60 vote swing from the north to the south in the Electoral College. The, the Sun Belt Coalition becomes essential to Ronald Reagan's success in getting elected president in 1980. So there, there's a direct connection between air conditioning and Reagan's presidency. He might have gotten elected another way, but he would have had to have built a different kind of political coalition to do it. And then it's just to end it. I mean, then that sets up this question of all of a sudden all these people are living in deserts, and there's a there's a water issue there. Um, and you know, there are some people who think we shouldn't be living in deserts um, at the scale that we're doing now, given given the issues in the West with water. Um, so you know, and that all started with some guy trying to like keep the ink from running on a printing press in in Brooklyn. <laughs> And, of course, you could take any of these things, you know, glass, as we've talked about, time, light, and and carry it forward. And these stories are not finished yet, that, that these stories are still playing themselves out in so many different ways. And we're trying, you know, that's one of the things that we, we, we did some, um, there's some things in the book and even more, I would say, in the, in the series where we went to kind of present-day environments where these things, interesting things are happening. And, for instance, we went to, um, Livermore Labs um, in the Bay Area, quite near where you are, um, where they're doing these kind of laser um, nuclear fusion uh, experiments that are really interesting and could be potentially a, you know, an extraordinary and very clean source of energy for the planet in the future. Um, but we also, the book and the show are mostly, it's, it's mostly a kind of history uh, of these innovations. Um, but we found there were all these interesting things that were happening now, particularly on a kind of a global scale. And so we ended up creating a, a website um, called How We Get to Next that's partially funded by the Gates Foundation and the Knight Foundation um, that, that will continue, you know, kind of to be updated every every day or so with news stories uh, of people who were innovating in this same way uh, all around the world, actually. And and, and, and the developing world is, is a really interesting place for these innovations because sometimes what can happen there is that they can just bypass um, the legacy technologies that we, that we rely on in, in places like the United States because we have these solutions built in the 19th century. Well, they don't necessarily have to rely on 19th century solutions because they're kind of starting anew. Uh, so there's a lot of interesting innovation happening in that world, and we're trying to program, uh, you know, kind of celebrate some of that on the website. We're seeing that now in the third world, particularly with cell technology, with cell phones, and everything that goes along with that. Everything from payments to communication. Yeah, the the payment side was really interesting. You know, after all this, the cell technology may be like the new kind of commercial model now for for that context. And the other interesting place, and I wrote about this a bit in the book, is uh, is toilets. Right, so you've got this issue of particularly in you know big mega cities where you have the favelas or shanty towns where there's not any infrastructure and you have these kind of improvised living conditions. The, there's a 19th century solution to big cities and waste removal and sanitation, which is you build a giant sewer system with massive infrastructure and 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 do all of that because that was what was that was what made sense in the 19th century and we. There's a bunch of uh, discussion of that in the book and the show, um, but in the 21st century, you know, the, you don't necessarily need to do that anymore because we have new technologies. And, and, and the Gates Foundation actually did a wonderful um, uh, 
kind of challenge called reinventing the toilet <laughs> a while ago. <laughs> and they basically said, invent a toilet that doesn't require, that's completely standalone, that can kind of reprocess the waste, turn it into energy, potentially um, purify water with that energy, create this kind of standalone device. Um, and there are a bunch of uh, uh, winners, um, and, and they all rely on new technologies now, solar panels and microchips and other things that, that, that we didn't have in the 19th century. So they may just be able to fast forward to that stuff that, in a way that it's much harder for us to do. And much of that falls under the category, one that we haven't touched on yet, one of the six innovations that you look at in the book, which is this idea of clean and cleanliness. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, uh, if you're thinking about important innovations in the world, you know, I mean, yes, my iPhone is amazing. And, <laughs> you know, particularly in the Bay Area, we love to celebrate that kind of innovation. But a glass of clean drinking water that comes to your house through a tap that is not going to kill you with cholera or typhoid 48 hours later or two weeks later, that is also a great innovation. And I think if we had to choose, I hope most people would choose clean drinking water over their iPhones. I know it would be close, but, you know, it's it's a huge thing. And we, we had massive problems with contaminated drinking water 150, 160 years ago. I wrote a whole book about this, The Ghost Map, about cholera. Um, and and this, the, all the kind of creativity and the science and engineering that went into really eliminating that problem. I mean, you know, in the modern world, in the in the developed world, we do not, we just do not ever think about our drinking water killing us. And it was a, a, a huge concern just 120, 130 years ago. So we really, we have a whole episode that's really trying to kind of celebrate that and tell some of those stories. It's a lot of fun. In many ways, it's taking a look at the forensics of everything, really drilling down into everything to really find out what the history is. Yeah, you know, in that way, it, it kind of mirrors a lot of the characters that we talk about. Because one of the characteristics of of all these people that uh, that we that, that we kind of profile in the show and in the book, um, in addition to them all being a little bit nuts, right? You have to be a little crazy to kind of <laughs> come up with these new ideas. But they're also just they're just really curious about things, and they, they you know they just something happens. There's a story about Clarence Birdseye who invents flash freezing and frozen foods and then eventually flash freezing becomes central to frozen embryos and, and IVF. So it starts with frozen bees but it ends up with human beings being born that would have never been born before. Um, but Birdseye has this experience as a young man. He's got a young family and he moves to Labrador and he's there in the winter with like a one-year-old kid which is not a good thing to do because it's very cold up there. And he's trying to just get food for his family and he goes ice fishing and he, it's so cold that when he pulls a fish out of the lake, it freezes instantly. And when he goes back and thaws it out two days later and eats it, he's like, that was really tasty. That tasted much better than any frozen food I've ever had before. And a normal person, you know, you or me, we would just be like, and that was really tasty. Good. I'm going to bed now. You know, I had a good meal. But Birdseye's like, why was it tasty? You know, what was going on there? That, that was different. And so he goes and does a whole series of experiments with like frozen vegetables and other frozen fish and frozen meat. And he eventually discovers that things that are frozen very quickly at very low temperatures are do much less damage to the cellular composition of the of the food and, and thus preserve it much better. And out of that, he, he creates a whole industry. But I love that, that desire to just investigate. And that's what we, that's what it was like putting the, 
this project together is we would just kind of dive into, as you said, forensic is a great word. We would dive into something and be like, but where did that come from? And what made that possible? And then what were the consequences of that? And it's just, it, it, it was really fun to do. And I hope it, you know, it comes across in, in the book and the show that kind of, you know, infectious kind of curiosity about the world. The overlay to all of this is something that gets referred to and that you talk about as the hummingbird effect. Talk a little about that, Stephen. Well, I wanted to kind of have a term for for the the kind of unintended consequences because that is such a driver of change in the world. And and uh, and actually, it, it, you know, it has kind of a California root to it. I was uh, we, we were at that point we were living full time in Marin, and we have a lovely garden there, and and all these hummingbirds. And so I would like sit there working on the book and look at these hummingbirds. It's lovely. But I started thinking about the evolution of hummingbirds, and it's kind of similar to the way that technology and ideas kind of evolve in society in the sense that the flowering plants and insects develop this kind of interesting relationship, symbiotic relationship um, over millions of years. And they're kind of locked in this pollination process. You know, the insects take the pollen and then the nectar, which eventually develops and, you know, inadvertently kind of fertilize these other flowers um, by going around and kind of feeding on this stuff. And so you would look at that and say, okay, this is this is a relationship between plants and insects, right? This is their thing. They're doing this, you know, kind of dance um, to to survive. But then this bird gets involved in this process, and over time, the hummingbirds evolve this unique ability to hover next to a plant, which most birds can't do, and they have to have completely different anatomy to their wings to be able to support that kind of hovering action, and. And I thought, well, that's that's what it's like. You you think it's just about you know insects and and plants, but it eventually ends up changing the design of a hummingbird's wing, which you would think would have nothing to do with this. And and that's what happens with technology. You would think that inventing the printing press would have nothing to do with people's eyeglasses, and then with the invention of the telescope. But in fact, that's the way it works. That's the way the the change happens in the world. And talk a little bit about the PBS series that accompanies the book we're talking about. Well, we it really was developed in in parallel. Actually, we really kind of started with a series, and then but all along we, I you know, planned to write a book. Um, each episode is is one of these topics: glass, bite, clean, um, cold, sound, uh, and time. And it, it, effectively, it's a history show. But I I think it doesn't look like your conventional history show at all, and that. We we travel all around the world. Um, I'm kind of doing things. So, like, I went. For instance, in San Francisco, I, I went for the cleanup. So, I went into the sewers in San Francisco to kind of introduce the importance of these engineering projects to modern life. And that, by the way, was the worst thing that I've ever done in my <laughs> life. It was so awful. Um, I do not recommend it. Uh, and uh, but then we went to the top of Mauna Kea for the glass episode, uh, in, in part because they they use mirrors in those telescopes up there, the CAC telescopes, because um, uh, we have a whole riff about mirrors and the importance of mirrors to society. So it's a it's a globe-trotting series. There's great animations that we have. Um, it's kind of playful. It's a really good show, uh, I think, to watch with your kids. Like, you know, because all the stories, I think, will be really fresh for people. We really tried hard to tell stories that people had not heard before and and surprising twists, like some of which we've talked about just now. But it also is is at a tone where I think you know an eleven year old could happily watch it. I mean, I watch it with my kids, and um, I think they they really honestly couldn't care less that I'm in it. 
in fact, I'm kind of a liability for them in the show that they're kind of embarrassed by me. But uh, but I think they really like the, the the plot basically and the storytelling. So so uh, it was a lot of fun to make. It was a lot of work, but uh, a lot of travel. But um, I think it's turned out really well. I'm very proud of it. And how has this process changed the way you look at literally everything today? whether it is Facebook or whether it is something more technologically innovative, you look at everything today through a different lens, I think, as a result of thinking about all of this. It's made me a very annoying person at like a cocktail party where I'm like, where did napkins come from? So, but no, I think it's really important to just have some historical context to these things because... You know, we're living in this age of rapid innovation. There's so much going on, and and you know, this is something we really wrestle with a lot in the Bay Area because we're, in some ways, the you know, the center of innovation for the world. Um, I don't think it's exaggerating to say that. And and so the things we invent um, are, are going to be, you know, hopefully good at their kind of local purpose and objective. But we also have to go into it with the assumption that they're going to have that these hummingbird effects are going to exist and. Um, Sometimes those effects can be, you know, negative ones, and we have to think about those consequences um, and and try and anticipate them where we can. It's hard. It's hard to do, but that's one of the reasons why looking at the history and these kind of patterns of innovation from the past, I think, can be really instructive for thinking about the future. I suppose the splitting of the atom is perhaps the penultimate revolution that could have negative consequences. Yeah, and then, you know, the positive ones are, you know, our understanding of, uh, uh, of the atomic scale led to um, atomic clocks, which we have a whole long riff about in the mm-hmm. in the book and the show and the time episode. And funny thing about atomic clocks is they, you know, you think about them, they're accurate to, you know, the nanosecond and beyond, the most accurate form of measurement of, of anything in the world, apparently. Um, but the big thing that they made possible is GPS. GPS is built out of atomic clocks and, and relies on very accurate timekeeping, ironically, to tell us where we are physically in the world. So, you, you know, you wouldn't think that, like, a really accurate clock would help you, like, figure out where the Starbucks is. <laughs> but, but that's the way technology works. You know, it just proceeds in these strange directions. Stephen Johnson, his book is How We Got to Now, Six Innovations That Made the Modern World. It's also the basis of the upcoming PBS series. Stephen, thanks so much for spending time with us today. My pleasure. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.